0: Our sermon text today comes from Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, which is found in your pew Bible on page 831. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and heard the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? but the righteous into eternal life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's
1: pray together. Lord, I'm I'm going to pray uh, very much like I did last week that, that you would so work in these minutes that there would be none here who ever hear you say, depart from me. That everyone here will hear you on that great day say to them, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, you who are blessed by my Father. I ask you to do this in the lives of uh, those who are already joined to you as branches into your true vine. And I, I pray for the sanctifying power of these reflections of your glorious future. And for those not yet joined to you, not yet grafted in, I pray that you would work to the end that, with saving power, that they might be grafted in on this day and that this would be the day of their salvation. I pray in your name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, by God's grace, we are finishing uh, today our study of uh, Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, We've been in these uh, chapters for a number of weeks, and they represent uh, what's, what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's the fifth and final big block of teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is basically structured around five humongous blocks of teaching. And the last one, the fifth and final block of teaching is uh, chapters 24 and 25. They're called the Olivet Discourse because if you go back to chapter 24, verse 3, scroll back in your mind about six months. Okay, there was a slight trace of irony there. But you see that the teaching, you can see there that the teaching Jesus offers in these chapters, he offers with, uh, to his disciples while they're On the Mount of Olives. Now, this is a very significant block of teaching because if you think about it, this is the block of teaching that is closest then to Jesus' crucifixion. And so, you know, in the same way that you would in the Gospel of John pay particular attention to our Lord's teaching in chapters 13 through 17, the Upper Room Discourse. You know, what is it, when, when Jesus knows that his crucifixion is uh, in just a matter of hours, what is it that he's emphasizing? What is it that is at the forefront of his mind? And here, what is so interesting is if you take in, you pull back from from our passage this morning and you think about, okay, what's the panorama been of chapters 24 and 25? What you see is that what has been on Jesus' mind at the climax of his first coming is... Thoughts about the climax of his second coming. Which is really interesting because you might think, if you were making this up, that you would talk about the second coming after his resurrection. But Jesus wants to make sure, apparently from the way he is allocating his teaching time with his disciples, that before his disciples, and therefore before we look at the cross and see what is accomplished there, we will be prepared to view it through the lens of his second coming. So in other words, Jesus seems to be suggesting to his disciples by this placement, I think, that the, the gravity of his first coming, which reaches its peak in his crucifixion, is ultimately unintelligible unless you understand the ultimate gravity of his second coming, that he is the judge of the living and the dead, that he will return one day to lay claim to all that is rightfully his and to all who are rightfully his. And unless you are viewing his crucifixion his cross through that lens, you will, you will conclude wrongly that it is a victim's defeat. But it is a victor's conquest and that conquest has consequences for 100% of the population of planet Earth. And so this morning what I want to do with you is I want us to look at three strands of Jesus' thought about his second coming that are very prominent in this last passage from Matthew 25. And those three strands of Jesus' thoughts are his thoughts about his own future glory. uh, That'll be our first point. Secondly, his love for his church. And third, uh, his thoughts about the fate, the eternal fate of the unconverted. So his thoughts... What's Jesus' mind as we see from, from these verses? Jesus' mind is full of these three massive strands of thought. His own future glory, his love for his church, and the eternal fate of the unconverted. And let's begin by thinking about his own uh, future glory. The, that's the first thing we see, really, or that we learn from our passage, is that at the climax, and this is so interesting, I mean, the Bible is so fascinating, if you would just slow down, and I would slow down long enough to linger, we would see wonders. But if you drive by the freeway on the freeway and you never get off and you never stop, you're going to miss wonders. At the climax, what was the first thing we learned from our? passage is that at the climax of Jesus' first coming, his mind and heart are full of thoughts about himself and his own future glory at the climax of his second coming. Do you see that? Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You know, in chapter 17, you remember when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, they go up on the mountain and Jesus is visually transfigured in front of them and he appears as whiter than any launderer can whiten anything on earth and he's just a blinding glory. Do you remember how he's visually transfigured before them? Well, now he is verbally transfigured. Here he is. He's describing himself He's the Son of Man and He's he's picturing Himself as the Son of Man who's going to come in His glory with all the angels with Him and He's going to sit on His glorious throne. The one, friends think about it. this is so amazing. This is the one, the one who's saying this, who's transfiguring himself verbally in front of his disciples and, and us as well as we sit under this portion of his word. This is the same one who in just a matter, a short little while is going to be in front of a Roman battalion who are going to strip him naked. They're going to mock him and spit upon him. They're going to put a scarlet robe on his naked body. They're going to to thrust a reed into his hand. They're going to push a crown of thorns down upon his head and they're going to mock him and bow in front of him. And that one who is just about to go through that now is thinking about the day when he will be enthroned on the earth. The same one who very shortly will be abandoned by his people, abandoned by his his disciples, and even abandoned by his father on his cross, is thinking now. He is thinking about the day when he will not be alone, when he will return to the earth enthroned and glorified with all his angels the one who we saw in chapter 6 back when you were a wee little lad and lass he taught his disciples to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven now here on the on the verge of his crucifixion he is now thinking about how he himself is the ultimate answer to those petitions. You see, the one who is about to be judged uh, by the kangaroo courts of earth, by Herod's court and Pilate's court and Caiaphas' court, he's thinking about the day when he will return, when he will be enthroned and preside as the judge of all the earth. That's what he is thinking about. Now, friends, one of the first things they teach you in law school. I know it's a little early on Sunday morning, but this is important. One of the first things they teach you in law school is that in order for a court, in order for a judge to render a valid judgment, he must possess what is called jurisdiction. And jurisdiction is the power to speak the law. And you have to, there are two kinds of jurisdiction, and in order for a a court to render a valid judgment, you have to have both kinds of jurisdiction. If you only have one, then you can't render a valid judgment. The first jurisdiction that you must have in order to render a valid judgment is that you must have jurisdiction over the person, over the person, friends. The Supreme Court of Albania has no jurisdiction over me. It can enter all the judgments it wants. I have never been to Albania. The second kind of jurisdiction that a court must have, that a judge must have in order to render a valid verdict is jurisdiction over the subject matter of the dispute. And friends, I want you to think about the jurisdiction that Jesus Christ envisions for himself here. Look at verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations, will be gathered, they're not going to come as a flash mob, they're going to be gathered by a greater power, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate, he's a judge, he will separate people, one from another, not just nations as a whole, but individuals within those nations, all the people, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on on the left and then verse 34 the king will say to those on his right and then he renders a verdict friends what jesus is envisioning do you see what he's saying he's saying that i will i have authority i have jurisdiction over all people i have jurisdiction as judge ...over all of humanity... ...and I have jurisdiction... ...over all of eternity... ...it is I who will render the decisive verdict... ...over every human life... ...that will determine their eternal destiny... ...this is exactly what God pictured in Daniel 7... ...with the prophecy of the Son of Man... ...that he showed to the prophet Daniel... ...the Son of Man who is given dominion... ...by the Ancient of Days... ...by the Father that all peoples and all languages and all nations may serve him forever. This is the same jurisdiction, the same power and authority as a judge that Jesus celebrates in John chapter 5 when he says, the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Did you hear that? The Father judges no one. No one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is celebrating the Father's grant of jurisdiction to him. Universal jurisdiction over all peoples. Why? What's the end of that grant of jurisdiction? That all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. This is, what's fu- this is what is filling Jesus' mind. This is what his mind and heart are full of. His future glory, right as he is poised to enter the climax of his first coming, he is full of thoughts, full of thoughts and images of what his glory will be like at the climax of his second coming. It is sobering. And I've wondered a lot, I spent a lot of time this week Wondering, why is it that Jesus speaks of himself in the third person? Why doesn't he say, when I come in my glory and all the angels with me, then I will sit on my glorious throne? Why doesn't he say that? I mean, the, to me, that would be the more natural way to express myself. But that's not what Jesus does throughout the whole passage. He speaks of himself in the third person. And I, I wonder why. I, and, and all the commentators I looked at, they're totally silent on the question. I find this frequently that the things that absorb me um, appear to be so trivial <laughs> to people who actually know what they're talking about that no one even bothers to waste ink on it. But to me, this is important. Because it's not like in the rest of his teaching, Jesus doesn't use the first person pronoun I or my. So why here? And I, and I have a hypothesis, and this is just Mike. But I wonder... I wonder whether the closer the Lord Jesus gets to his crucifixion, knowing what that trial is going to be like for him, knowing what he's going to have to endure, I wonder if this is just kind of a window into him holding fast onto the promises of God. So he's picturing himself embedded in the promise of Daniel 7, 13, 14. He's picturing the Son of Man and seeing himself embedded in that. I wonder if this is part of the joy that that the writer of the Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 12. That this is part, one aspect of the joy that was set before Jesus that enabled him to endure the cross. As he thought about the fact that every human life, it doesn't matter who it is or who it's been, Vladimir Putin, Lady Gaga, Bono, you, me, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, Julius Caesar, everyone, everyone's life, everyone's life, every culture, every historical epoch, is going to end up before the throne of Jesus Christ to be judged there. What a sobering reflection. Friends, when Jesus is talking about uh, his future, he's talking about ours. He's the judge of the living and the dead. This is not a picture in which you or I are absent We are present there, my friends. And what this text is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing, I believe that Jesus is here this morning. He's present by His Spirit. And what He is doing by His Spirit is He is testifying right now from this word to every single one of us, showing us this is your future. You will be here. You will be here. And there are only two alternatives. There is the right of the king or the left of the king. Do you know, if it were today, are you certain which side you would be on? There is no need to speculate. It is totally unnecessary to wonder. What is necessary is to respond. So I wonder how you are responding to that truth. I mean, as you see Jesus asserting uh, his jurisdiction over your life. I mean, what he's saying is that you are not the judge. I am not the judge of my, my life. You are not the judge of your life. Friends, In the end, whatever opinions you or I have about our own lives, they pale in significance. They are meaningless. They are dust on the scales in comparison to the might and the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? It doesn't matter if culture gives you every award it has in its treasure house. It doesn't matter if everyone you ever live with likes you, but Jesus Christ finds you wanting You see, in the end, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters in the end is what Jesus Christ thinks of you. So I wonder what you think of that. Are you numb in front of that? Are you bored by that? Are you angered by that? Are you comforted by that? Or are you provoked to some level of fear? Do you know how you're responding? Friends, I want you to think about how you are responding to that truth right now, the truth that Jesus is setting before you about his future and yours. Can you examine your own heart, my friend? Because if you can't gauge where you are in your response, how will you take refuge? Oh, friends, think about it. So that's the first theme that fills Jesus' mind and heart at the climax of his first coming, his future glory. The second one, the second thing that we see Jesus's mind and heart are full of at the climax of his first coming are the thoughts that he has of love, his love for his church at the climax of his second coming. I mean, he's thinking about his love for his church. He's he's poised to to be betrayed and poised to be unjustly judged and poised to be treated like a criminal and condemned to death and mocked by his people and abandoned by his disciples. He's poised to do all of that. And what is filling his mind are not thoughts of betrayal and not thoughts of his suffering, but thoughts, my friends, of love for his church. And there are three facets, three beautiful facets of his love for his church that, that he describes um, see, this is not a parable. See, we've left the parable. We're now in the literal, in the real. You see, there are no more, I mean, there's just some, some slight figures of speech about the goat and the sheep, but we're out of the parabolic. We're into the real. And, and there are three in this real place that Jesus is describing and envisioning about what reality is going to be like at his second coming. He is, he is describing his love for his church, and we see it in three ways, three facets. First, his love for his church is the standard by which he will measure all people. Secondly, we see it in his preparation for his church. And third, we see it uh, in his identification with his church. So let's look first at this idea of the standard. Now, this is really important because this passage is so frequently uh, misread. So let me add another element to the judicial analogy that I was Uh, pursuing before you know we talked about jurisdiction that a judge has to have authority in order to render a valid verdict he has to render uh, he has to have power he has to have legitimate power over the person and the subject matter we've seen that Jesus has uh, legitimate authority from God over every person over all of humanity and over all the claims of eternity bearing in upon everyone's life and now now there's another element we need to add which is that the the judge weighs the evidence looks at the facts and then applies to that evidence a standard of righteousness there has to be some law some standard on which the judge bases his verdict and renders his judgment it's just not a whimsical capricious thing there's a There's facts. Hey, this is what happened. And then there's the standard. And what happened or didn't happen is measured in light of that standard. You know what is so breathtaking about this passage is that Jesus boils down the standard against which everyone will be measured to this. Our relationship to his church. Our relationship to his church. Specifically the individuals he identifies as my brothers, verse forty and the least of these, verse 45. What Jesus is declaring, friends, is that he is going to measure fidelity to him in terms of our fidelity to his disciples. He declares that he will measure the genuineness of our love for him by the deed-evidenced genuineness of our love for his brothers and sisters in the church. Where there is no genuine love, No genuine deed-evidenced love for Christians. There is no genuine love for Christ. Genuine love for Christ is never present when genuine love for Christians is absent. Now friends, here's how this passage is often read wrongly that the ultimate standard on the last day is going to be about our deeds of mercy and compassion toward people generally. Now, that's a biblical truth. That's important, right? I mean, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Let your, let your light, let your work so shine in the world that, that men would glorify your Father who is in heaven. That is true. That is not what this passage is about. So, you can have good theology and you can, you can slap it onto bad exegesis. This passage, this passage is one in which Jesus is declaring that the standard he's going to measure people by is their love specifically for his disciples, his church. Now, I know that's what you expect a pastor to say, but I'm not saying it. It's what the passage is saying. Step one, let me show that to you. According to Jesus, what distinguishes the sheep from the goats, the criterion on which their respective eternal destinies turn is their relationship with and deeds toward his disciples. Look at the sheep in verse 40 right? And the king will answer them. Why are they entering into the kingdom prepared? Why are they the blessed by his father? Why are they entering the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world? And when, he says, truly I say to you, verse 40, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then what is the basis for his ultimate eternal verdict on the goats? Look at verse 45. Truly I say to you, same formula, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, meaning one of the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me. Those whom Jesus identifies as his brothers are not his fellow human beings, but they're his disciples. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Let me show this to you. From Matthew chapter 12. And that's on page 818 in your Pew Bible. So you go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 49. Well, actually, let me back up. Right? Jesus is teaching. And look at the start of verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. Those are his, that's his his mom and his biological half-brothers, right? His brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now watch this, verse 49. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples... He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus' own use of this terminology earlier in Matthew's gospel makes it very clear that when, when he is speaking of his brothers in verse 40 of chapter 25, he's talking about his disciples. So his love for his church is manifested in the fact that it's his disciples and the relationship that every human being has with his church, that this is the eternally decisive standard. That is absolutely staggering. You see, we don't get to... See, what we want is we want a privatized religion where we're siloed, right? And it only goes this way, vertical. So we can have this private relationship with Jesus because, honestly, Jesus' followers are a pain, You know, Jesus didn't think that. He didn't think that about you. He didn't think it about me. Friends, unless you think that I'm just loading too much exegetical heft onto this passage, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. So so go to uh, page 1022 in your pew Bible. See, Jesus will not permit a siloed, privatized faith. So look at, the end, look at verse 10. First John 3, verse 10. John, the Apostle John, is describing exactly the same stark divide that Jesus does in Matthew 25. Exactly the same. So, so what I'm trying to show you now is, is, is Jesus is very clearly speaking just about his disciples and the criterion Uh, that he's going to measure every life by is our relationship to his disciples, to his church, and that's an expression of his love. And we've seen that when he says, my brothers, he means his disciples. We saw that from Matthew 12. Now look at how John describes exactly the same divide. Look at verse 10. Whoever does, excuse me, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's about as absolute a divide as you can get, right? Thinking back to to Genesis 3. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now pick up at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Okay, you want to know? How do you know you're a Christian? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. There is no legitimate assurance of salvation Unless you love your fellow Christians. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He's describing exactly what Jesus is picturing in Matthew 25. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet sees his brother in need, do you see that? And yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? See, John is making exactly the same point. So friends, five deductions, five deductions that flow from this uh, very important point that Jesus is setting before us. Number one, I don't love Jesus unless I love his brothers. That's deduction number one. I don't love Jesus unless I love his brothers. Number two, I don't love Jesus' brothers unless I love his church because, mm-hmm. hello, that's where his brothers are gathered. Deduction number three, I don't love his church unless I love the people in the church. Deduction number four, I don't love the people in the church at a general level unless I love specific people The specific people in his church. So if I just say, yeah, I love people, that is totally meaningless, right? Because you can pat yourself on the back. You know, that works in a silo. It doesn't work in real life, right? There is no love of people generally that is not ultimately manifesting itself in love of people particularly and specifically, right? And deduction number five, I do not love specific people unless I get and stay regularly close enough to them to bear their burdens with them bear one another's burdens Galatians 6 2 says and thus fulfill the law of Christ thus fulfill the standard of righteousness that the judge of the living and the dead is going to apply unless I regularly get and stay close enough to other people, specific people, so that I can be close enough to bear their burdens with them, to hear hear the groaning of the not yet of the kingdom in their lives, to see, close enough to see in their lives the glory of the already of the kingdom in their lives, then I don't love them. It's all just kind of self-congratulatory theater. And I have to be close enough. There's another side, right? I don't love them if I'm not close and regularly staying close enough to them to let them bear my burdens. To hear, to get close enough to me to hear the groaning of the not yet of the kingdom coming out of me. To get close enough to me to see the glory of the already of the kingdom in me. Friends, this is not a little point, it is a big point. Do not underestimate Jesus' love for his church. Do not underestimate his love for the people he came into the world to save do not underestimate his love for the specific particular people he purchased with his own blood at the church do not disdain his church do not disdain his brothers do not uh, distance yourself from his brothers to do so is an eternally eternally dangerous act The second facet of Jesus' love for his church that he highlights for us is his preparation for his church. And this, this just, and that's really in verse 34. Do you see that? Then the king will say to those on his right, I just think about this. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, this is amazing. I mean, think about it. At the climax of his first coming, as he's poised to go to the cross for us, he he is thinking about the day at the climax of his second coming when he is going to be able to bestow the final crowning, blessing that he has he's been waiting for he's thinking about the day that he has been waiting for from all eternity this is a kingdom this is a reward that he has prepared for his bride with the father from the foundation of the world from before creation he's but think about it the mind and heart of Jesus Christ have been full of this thought And this plan, the day when he would be able to look his people in the eye, in his glory, and award to them all the fruits of his victory. He's been looking forward to this day from all eternity past. And it's yet another joy set before him. I think, that strengthens him to endure the cross and despise the shame. Don't underestimate the depth of the roots of the love of Jesus Christ for his people. And don't underestimate the infinite reach into the eternity future of Jesus Christ's love for his people. There is a kingdom set before us, my friends, that Jesus will award on that day to all who have loved his appearing. It's a kingdom that he has been preparing, a purpose that he joined from the Father's heart that he has labored toward through history, that, that he labored For through the prophecies of the Old Testament and in his incarnation and his earthly ministry that he's laboring toward as he intercedes for us at the Father's right hand and that he will consummate when he returns. It is ever on his mind and heart and with that purpose he holds his people. Do not underestimate this love of Jesus Christ. Do you see why, when you've been a Christian for a while, you look at this kind of heart and you say, why isn't everybody a Christian? Why would anyone think poorly of Jesus Christ? So I ask you, friends, did you come in here thinking poorly of Jesus Christ? Do you find him boring? I mean, ho-hum. Oh, friends, do you see... The ho-hum is all about you and not about him at all. You want to be loved? You want a romance? You want somebody to know the real you, to give themselves to you freely? You want to be known and you want the opportunity to love someone freely, to give your whole life to them without fearing that they're going to reject you. It's only going to happen in one place. Only one. Jesus Christ and he stands forth from this word today to call you to himself don't walk away from that summons look at what he was willing to do to give his life to ransom you friends the third the third aspect of Jesus's love is his identification with his people so, we measure the magnitude of uh, Jesus' love by, for his church by he makes, his, he makes love for his church the standard by which, uh, the gold standard against which every life is going to be measured. Because if you don't love Jesus' uh, disciples, you don't love him. It's like this barometer of whether or not you're genuinely born of God. If you're in union with Jesus Christ, you're going to love Jesus' brothers. Secondly, he shows us that, that his love. The magnitude of his love is measured by the depth of the roots of his preparation for his people and also the reach of the into eternity future, the kingdom that he is preparing for his people. But thirdly, we see him emphasizing that his, the magnitude of his love is measured uh, by his identification with his people. And you notice how, how even Christians are surprised at how identified he is with his people there. You know, when he awards to the... This, this just blew me away. Right, the righteous are totally blown away by how closely identified Jesus is with his people. Look, that's why when he goes through the basis for his judgment for the sheep, starting at verse 35, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, Now, the righteous have, there are a couple of options. The righteous at that point could say, that's right, we did Because we understand, our ecclesiology is really good. We read 1 John 3. We get it. We read Acts 9 when you said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? We got that. But look at how they answer. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink give you a drink and when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you and when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you see you see even they are surprised even they are in awe of the degree to which Jesus Christ's love compels him and constrains him to identify with his people You know, there's two things that Jesus makes that very shockingly clear about suffering in this passage. The first is, is that um, suffering is going to be the ordinary experience of his people. There's just a lot of suffering there. Do you see that? Just a lot of suffering. It's going to be very ordinary. And it's going to pervade in the lives of his people. So let me put it this way. The, the good guys are going to have a lot of hard times. And that suffering is going to pervade every sphere of life there's going to be financial suffering, there's going to be interpersonal suffering, there's going to be relational suffering, there's going to be physical suffering, there's going to be social suffering, there's going to be legal suffering. That's the first thing he makes clear. Suffering is normal for his people in the age between his first and second comings. The second thing is notice the theme of ownership. He is going to so closely identify himself with every aspect of the suffering of his brothers that he is going to declare on that day. Now, did did you see this? The first person pronoun so important. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. Not, I had compassion on you when you were hungry. I had compassion on you when you were thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison. No, 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 do you see what he's doing? On that last day, my friends, you know, all those all those promises that he's going to wipe away every tear, those promises from Psalm 56 that God has kept all the tears of his people in his bottle, that he has written down in his book all the wanderings and tossings of his people. Friends, this is the fulfillment of it. Jesus is so, I mean, what an amazing king. It would be such an amazing king for a king who's, to whom dominion over all people has been given, who sits on his glorious throne, to whom all the nations will be gathered, right? He has universal jurisdiction over all of humanity for all the purposes of eternity. It would be totally amazing if that glorious king would simply lay claim to sufferers as his subjects. Say, yeah, those are mine. That would be amazing. But Jesus goes way beyond that here. He's not only asserting his claims over them, over the sufferers as his subjects, he's laying claim, his, lawyer, his royal rights, he's laying claim to their suffering as his own. What a span his throne covers, right? The king of glory Identifying so completely with the hunger and the thirst and the estrangement and the isolation and the nakedness and the sickness and the imprisonment of his people. There is nothing that he is not king. Nothing that he is not king over. No one. There is no sphere of experience in which his kingship is not glorious relevant. This is an amazing king. This is a strong king and a soft king. This is a safe king and in many ways a very risky king because you see what he's doing. He's laying claim to every distress of his people. He's not shunning the distress of his people. He's entering it from the inside and owning it. Now what kind of a king would do this? Here we go again, right? Why would you stand afar off from Jesus Christ? Why? Why would you? Why are you standing far off from him intellectually, emotionally, or volitionally? Some of you are holding harder and tighter onto your patterns of sin than you are to the sin bearer. Why? Why would you do that? That is madness. Don't you see that? That is not rational. That's you clinging onto a seat cushion on the Titanic. Oh that. Look at that cross. This king, there is nothing that you are going through that he is not personally owned by entering it. You see, he, friends, took your greatest distress. This is your greatest distress, what this cross is about. Your sin, your alienation from God, the reality that you are guilty, just like I am, before God. An infinite God, an infinite holy God, an infinitely good God. Our greatest distress. And what did Jesus do? Did he say, well, I'll take care of your sickness and your hunger and your thirst and your nakedness. I'll take care of your economic suffering and your relational suffering and your political suffering. But nope, not that. No, you got to deal with your sin in front of the Father. No, that's yours. I'll take all the other stuff. It's exactly the opposite. Right? He proves his bona fides, he demonstrates his goodwill, he demonstrates the kind of king that he is, he proves it, my friends, by going to the cross, that kingdom that he prepared from before the foundation of the world, he prepared knowing full well what it was going to cost him. It was going to cost him that cross, and at the cross, he was willing, he was willing to despise the shame of the cross because it was what he wanted, to be the one who bore the greatest distress of his people, and if he did that, he will bear every other distress. Do you see his goodness See, Jesus is here. As I said this morning, I believe He's here. I believe He's present by His Spirit. I believe He's testifying from His Word, and I also believe He's testifying to each of us from that cross this morning. He's here. We're not talking about George Washington, some distant historical figure, who is irrelevant to us because we enjoy the benefits of his life. No, uh-uh-uh-uh. we're talking about the King of the Universe, who is here, who's bearing witness to Himself through his word, by the Spirit, and that cross, and from that cross, he's still testifying to us this morning. You know, he's saying saying this, right? I mean, the meaning of that cross is that Jesus looks upon us and says, you were hungry. You were hungry. You were spending your money. You were spending your money for what is not bread, and you were spending your labor for that which does not satisfy. So I came. I came. I came to be the bread of life for you. I came, right, to give my life. The bread that I will give, the living bread that I will give for the life of the world is my own life. You had starved yourself to death. You were to death. You were on a hunger strike against God and I saw your hunger and I came. I came to satisfy your hunger. You know, Jesus was starved for God on the cross. Jesus is testifying from that cross to each of us this morning. He says, you were thirsty. You were thirsty. You were mad with thirst. You were mad with thirst in the desert that the world world had become because of your sin. Your life had become a desert. And you were mad with thirst. And I came to satisfy your thirst by drinking the cup of God's wrath for you on the cross. I came to do that for you. I came to satisfy your thirst by by being thirsty myself on the cross. You remember in John 19, verse 28, that right before Jesus says it is finished, he says, I thirst. Jesus drank the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God, so that we could be satisfied our our thirst could be satisfied from the cup of blessing which he had earned. That's what Jesus is saying to each of us this morning. He's saying... He's saying that you were a stranger. You were estranged from God. You were separated from him. You were without God. You were without hope in the world. And I came. I came to bring you near to God by my blood. I came to be estranged from God for you that I might bring you into him by the power of my cross. Friends, Jesus was estranged from God willingly and fully on the cross that we might be gathered in. He says to us you were naked you were naked you were ashamed you were impoverished you were exposed you were in danger and i came to be naked and exposed and vulnerable in your place friends jesus was exposed on the cross to bear the wrath of god for us he's totally identifying with us lord he The the Lord of glory is letting himself be naked in front of men to be mocked, and he despised that shame. And he was naked on the cross, was willing to be disrobed of all his glory and his rightful entitlements, so that you and I could be clothed in his righteousness, friends. That's the identification that Jesus is working out. And the same with our sickness and our imprisonment and our captivity to sin. He took our illnesses. He bore our infirmities. We are healed with his wounds, my friends. He's so closely identifying. He makes himself the captive of our sin that we might go free. So friends, that's the identification of Jesus and his love with his people. It is so full, it is so omnipotent, it is so all-sufficient. That brings us to our final point, which is the way that Jesus, knowing these things about his ministry and knowing the fullness of his work on behalf of sinners, that's why I think his mind and heart are so full of thoughts about the eternal fate of the unconverted. And they are full, very vividly full as he considers the judgment that he's about to endure he is thinking about the judgment he's going to render one day and friends he's, this is so important you know there's a way of reading passages like this when Jesus warns uh, us about the judgment to come there's a way to read them where we ascribe to Jesus a tone of gloating and I would say that that is utterly blasphemous to do that. He's not gloating here. He is grieving, if anything. This is the same Jesus. That's what's going to happen to him when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane in just a little bit, in the very next chapter, in chapter 26. He's not gloating about the fate of the wicked. He's grieving the the consequences of the wrath of God for sinners that he himself is going to bear. He's not gloating when he speaks about When he uses a word like he does in verse 41, you cursed. Or when he talks about the eternal fire, verse 41. Or he talks about eternal punishment in verse 46. He's not talking about these things like they are distant abstractions. He knows that they're exactly what he's headed for when he goes to the cross. He's going to experience every single one of them at the cross. How is he going to redeem his people from the curse of the law? Galatians 3.13. By becoming a curse for them. So friends, this is not this is not idle speculation for Jesus. He's describing what he knows he is gonna have to endure himself on the cross. So we should listen to him. We should take him very seriously. When he he talks about the gravity of the judgment that people, that the unconverted are going to face. Do you see verse 41? I mean, this is so chilling to me, right? Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you see that? That if you are outside of Christ on that day, my friends, the punishment that God has prepared for you is exactly the same punishment that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, if I were a betting man, I would bet that you think that's an overreaction. But you're not God. You're not perfectly just. You're not the one sinned against. You're in no position to judge God's verdict. None. And the fact that you want to is just the fruit of your pride. Look at the gravity of the judgment and look at the gravity of the opportunity that Jesus sets before us. His warning, like we saw last week, listen, the goat's story in this, in this image is closed, but your story is not closed, my friends. It's still open. So don't approach your life, don't you dare approach your life at the foot of the cross fatalistically. You are called to an opportunistic, just like I am, an opportunistic repentance. Right now, Not, not some future point, but right now, this is a moment of decision. The valley of decision that the prophet Joel talks about in Joel chapter three is right here. Do you notice how Jesus describes himself as the loss of the lost? The last words that the lost will ever hear Jesus speak are in verse 41. Can you imagine that these would be the last words you would hear? That Jesus would speak, depart from me. Oh friends, why would you want those to be, why would you settle for those being the last words you ever hear Jesus Christ speak over your life? Depart from me, depart from the one who ha- you've just heard identify himself with his people so closely, that me is the same one who has identified himself with his people so closely in his love that there is no aspect of their distress that he is willing to shun, and that he has identified with their greatest distress. That would be the ultimate loss, to be separated from him forever, which is exactly the fate of the goats. Why? Why would you settle for that? Do not settle for that, my friends. That's why this passage is in the Bible, to persuade you, to provoke you, to to provoke you to action and decision and choice. Yes, choice. You must choose Jesus Christ. You must act. You do not know whether you are going to drive down Orange Camp Road when you leave here and a car on the other side of the road traveling at 50 miles an hour is going to, somebody in that car is going to be texting and they're just going to drift over that yellow line and hit you head on. Why do you assume that will only happen to someone else? You must act. If you do not act, know that you are already acting. You see, if you do not choose Jesus Christ as your gain, you are choosing him as your loss. In not choosing him, you are choosing. Friends, I know you're not used to me saying decide, choose, those kind of things. But I say them because that's what Jesus says. Come, to me all who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you you've got to decide and i pray that you would why what i don't know what the reasons are that why, why it is that some of you might hesitate, why there are some people in this room who right now are just pouring their hearts out in praise to God and they're, they're praying for the unbelievers in the sanctuary and they are so grateful to God for what God has given them and what Jesus has done and, and, and there you are seated next to them or maybe a couple rows down and you're just like, whatever. I'm not sure what the exact issues are in your life that cause you to be that way or cause you to limp between two opinions about Jesus Christ. You're alternately curious about him and then furious about his claims. You're drawn to him and yet you're repulsed by him. I don't know what the issues are in your life, but I can tell you what the issue is not. It is not the unwillingness of Jesus Christ to receive you. The eternally decisive unwillingness is yours and yours alone. And so what I'm praying, what I've been praying this week is that God in his grace would liberate it, it, you from it. And the first step that you will know, he, it, the, the first way that you will know that he is doing that is that you will begin to be burdened by your unwillingness to come to Christ. And you will begin to be burdened and labor under a concern for your soul that you cannot make yourself willing in the way that you know you must be. And so you will cast yourself upon God and ask him for the willingness to rest on Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray for you right now to that end. Let's pray. Father, now in your great mercy and for the glory of your son, we pray for that gift of willingness to come to Christ, to be born in the hearts of the lost and the unconverted. And we pray that you would open their eyes now, the eyes of their hearts, so that they would see Christ as the measure of heaven's gain and hell's loss, and that they, before the cross, would flee to him with all that they are and all that they have. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.